Hello, and welcome to PCB Chat, where we talk with experts across the printed circuit design, manufacturing, and electronic supply chain fields. I'm Mike Buteau, president of the PCEA. Today, we welcome back one of our favorite guests, David Schild, the executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. PCBAA was founded about three years ago to advance U.S. domestic production of PCBs and base materials. The organization is made up of corporate members of all sizes and includes fabricators, assemblers, and suppliers. David, welcome back to PCB Chat. Great to be here. Thank you, Mike. One, although hardly the only driver of the PCBAA, is ensuring U.S. defense readiness. We have spoken before about many policy initiatives, such as the Defense Production Act, the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, and of course, the Printed Circuit Boards and Substrates Act. Throwing yet another card on that policy table, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense last month introduced the National Defense Industrial Strategy, emphasis on industrial, so as not to confuse it with the National Defense Strategy. The NDIS, I believe, really gets at the heart of what PCBAA Chairman Travis Kelly and others have noted, that defense supply chain security extends far past equipping the service branches with weapons and communication systems. It encompasses telecom, finance, medical, and other end markets that we don't immediately associate with battle readiness. So, David, have you had a chance to review the NDIS? And if so, what are your takeaways on what it means for the PCB industry? Thanks, Mike. And it's great to be with you again. There's so much evidence now, so much collateral supporting this argument for reshoring and increasing domestic capacity. And certainly the National Defense Industrial Strategy, a first of its kind, I might add, really supports this. The DOD for a long time has had five critical technology pillars. One of them has been microelectronics. And this report calls out for the first time some of the deficiencies, some of the shortfalls, some of the single points of failure that we see in defense supply chains. And it talks about risk and it talks about the need for surge capacity. And it talks about you know, what do we do if we all of a sudden can't get a certain raw material or certain a component from a foreign source? It identifies this as a risk and it calls on Congress and the administration to act. So I think the important thing here is that the, re- the work was done, the study was made, and now we need to act on those conclusions. What stood out to me about the NDIS strategy is that it specifies not just the ta- challenges and the, the risks which you mentioned, you know, which are extensive and include items that many in our industry have been clamoring about for some time, uh, such as an inadequate workforce and inadequate. And those are, that's the word from the NDIS, inadequate, um, inadequate domestic production. But it also talks about solutions. And these include investing in additional capacity, increasing inventories, and also reviving something called the OIB, which is the network of U.S. government-owned defense industrial facilities, and that includes government-owned and government-operated sites. What are your sources telling you that this means? Does this suggest that the government plans to actually get into the manufacturing business? You know, I think the Pentagon is open to any and all possibilities to meet its needs, right? The missions that they are on are, by definition, the most critical missions that are out there. So. I think you see through a variety of investments, right, whether it's DPA or whether it's IBAS, direct investment. We were thrilled to see the money that went to GreenSource. We were thrilled to see the money that went to Calumet. These are really important investments. 
millions is great. I think it should be billions. I think most people in our industry agree it should be billions. I think the Pentagon has to be um, cagey and careful about what it's doing because we're in a competitive global environment, certainly. And when you look at where a lot of this stuff is sourced, uh, you know that our adversaries are, are watching our actions. But the Pentagon doesn't mess around. And I think that they're going to take this report and do what needs to be done. And I'm very encouraged when we talk to Assistant Secretary Dr. Taylor Kelly, you know, when we talk to other people uh, throughout these program offices, the PCB executive agent, they take this seriously. They're willing to move out. They're willing to meet with anybody in industry who can help them solve their problems. So just to um, just to drill down a little further, though, I mean, you mentioned the the, the funding mechanisms that are going to um, some of your member companies, right? You know, Green Source, Calumet, and so forth, um, and and these are, are are well documented and publicized and, and great, you know. But would that obviate the U.S. government pouring money into an entity such as, for example, Crane, uh, which is essentially government funded and, and more or less government run, or would you anticipate that? Funding that does come from the federal government will continue to go toward private industry. There are always going to be things where they feel the need to uh, have boots on the ground, uh, have their feet on the production floor when it comes to capacity. There's certainly work that's being done at um, Crane in Indiana uh, that supports this idea that, hey, the government's going to have its own manufacturing capacity. There are some joint initiatives that are underway, but I think the best solution is the industry uh, experts who want to manufacture and innovate these technologies. And in some cases, the Pentagon simply writing a check to make the investment to kickstart some of this work. And so I think that's the best use of the DPA. What we would say to Congress is fully fund the DPA. And once they have the money, press these offices to actually spend these funds. It doesn't do any good sitting in an account. Um, there's a letter that we sent in partnership with IPC to the Hill yesterday. It's signed by 54 microelectronics CEOs. And it basically says, look, you need to restore cuts that were previously made to fiscal year 24, the Defense Production Act and the Industrial Base and Analysis Sustainment Program. Right, It's roughly $1.6 billion in total funding that we're calling for in FY24. And then very quickly, we're going to pivot to FY25. But giving the Pentagon the money is not enough. They've got to be directed to spend it. There's, a, there's an initial start there, but I think there's more that could be done. Let me go back to that in a moment. Um, I just want to follow up on the, the NDIS. There's a segment called Actions. And one of the goals that I love is what they call destigmatize industrial careers. Likewise, the DOD wants to broaden the industrial workforce to underrepresented demographics to address worker shortfalls. In practice, what can we expect this would look like? You know, I think that that is a tough question to answer right now, Mike, because whenever I talk to our member CEOs, the workforce challenge is top of mind. Right, Our industry is older. It's graying. You go to any of these trade shows and you realize that we are not replacing the workers that are leaving at an aggressive enough clip. Now, I would say some of our members have instituted partnerships with universities. They've instituted internships and apprenticeships programs. But of course, we have a broad national problem with technology workforce. And you're right. The Pentagon looks at this and says, people have to be attracted to manufacturing. They have to see a career. I come out of the defense and aerospace industry where certainly people spent 30 or 40 years of their life making things like radars. And they saw it as a way to have a great 
middle class or upper middle class life, to stay in a thriving community, to be challenged and to use their skills and education, that's not different in microelectronics. We can meet that challenge. There is certainly a shortage of talent. It's why you see such reliance on H-1B visas. It's why you see shortages of things like signal integrity engineers. Wait, we've got to tackle this challenge. I don't want our industry to face the tech workforce challenge alone because it's it covers everybody, right? It's it's anybody who was touched by the Chips Act. It's anybody who might be touched by the PCBs Act. It's anybody in manufacturing. Building a factory is great. Having people on the floor who can do the work that could be the really tough part. So. Uh- it's premature, though, to think that there would be a concerted effort by the DOD to, uh, you know, go into, um, you know, different areas of the country and effectively, you know, challenge and recruit uh, at the teen or maybe even preteen level uh, folks to um, enter this industry and, you know, perhaps even a... Um, what I would call kind of a, a symbolic and, and, you know, universally accepted moment. You know, uh, we talked about this once before about the, you know, the, you know, putting a man on the moon and how important that was to the United States, not just really to prove we could put somebody on the moon, but rather because, you know, the technology, the underlying infrastructure that it represented um, and it, it unified the country's national vision in terms of, you know, how, not just how important this area is, but kind of how sexy it is, right? It, it, you know, it, you know, building stuff can be really cool, you know, if you, if you get down to the roots of it, um, but you have to be able to communicate that. So are we, am I too far out on a limb here? Or, you know, do you anticipate there being, you know, some kind of communication or strategy insofar as really pushing that message? You know, the report identifies the problem and says that we need to act I think that um, this first month after its release, we haven't seen the signals yet about what's going to happen. But what you'll see as we go through the year, right, and the armed services committees have their hearings and they bring in the assistant secretaries and the secretaries to testify on these reports, those are the kind of pointed questions you're going to get. So like your listeners, I'm looking forward to that testimony to see what the folks at the Pentagon have planned now that they've come to these conclusions. I I can't speculate, again, 30 days out um, as to what they're going to do, but calling out the problem is a first, right? I give them a lot of credit for doing this study. It's not easy to to audit yourself and say, where are the problems and what do we need to solve? But now they can point to that report when they do a workforce initiative or when they say, we've got to dole out more dollars. How much of the success of the NDIS will rely on a shift in priorities versus funding allocations? And in your mind, which is the higher bar? Boy, it is not an easy environment right now to seek additional funds. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it, you know, we it, you you laugh, but I mean, just look at what's going on in in, in Capitol Hill this week. Of no, course, right? It's you're absolutely serious, right. There are some serious headwinds, and Congress has tightened up his purse strings. What I would say is that the defense budget has often occupied a special place in Congress's thinking, and that the Chips Act was a rare bipartisan consensus on the need to invest for what were uh, a synergy of national security and economic security reasons. We're no different in the rest of the microelectronics stack. We have the same argument that Intel and TSMC and Micron had, which is what we make powers modern life, right? As I say, everything from F-150s to F-35s needs a semiconductor, an IC substrate, and a printed circuit board. There's a bipartisan acknowledgement of that. And we're not seeking I think, an amount of money that is going to crash the federal budget, right? The PCBs Act is looking for $3 billion in grants and a 25% tax credit. And when you look at what foreign governments have done by way of subsidies for the last 30 years, it pales in comparison. So 
I think um, we're playing catch up on industrial policy and we're going to fight those headwinds. That's why we were created. Educate, advocate, legislate. That's our mission. Now, listeners who are interested in seeing the NDIS can get a copy at businessdefense.gov slash NDIS.html. Now, let's shift gears here. I, I do want to mention that the sponsor of today's podcast is PCB East, the Electronics Industries East Coast Conference and Trade Show, coming in June to the Boston suburbs. This year's event features more than 75 hours of in-depth electronics engineering training, plus a special all-day forum on Ultra HDI design and manufacturing. And attendees for the free expo will see more than 60 leading suppliers of print circuit design software, materials, fabrication, and assembly equipment and services. Visit PCBEast.com for more information. David, PCBAA will be one of those exhibitors at PCB East. But I know that marketing PCBAA is just a fraction of your role. What can you tell us about your strategic priorities for this year? I'm really glad you asked. And by the way, we're very excited uh, to be on the East Coast for PCB East. I had a great time at PCP West last year, and it's so great to see our members and I think our potential members on the show floor. Our strategic priorities this year, Mike, are again focused on spreading the word about this technology set and moving the needle on Capitol Hill. Of course, I mentioned this joint effort with IPC to get the DPA funded and to get Congress to press the Pentagon to actually exercise those funds. I want to go back to H.R. 3249, the Printed Circuit Board Act, uh, the Protecting Circuit Boards and Substrates Act, right? Um, that bill is picking up additional co-sponsors in the House. We got Congressman Ro Khanna from California this this uh, just last week. We need a Senate companion, and we're talking to Senate offices. Of course, you're not going to move anything on Capitol Hill without a Senate version and a House version of that bill. So that's important. The National Defense Authorization Act continues to have language that we need to keep sold, focused on making sure the Pentagon identifies where in its supply chains it finds microelectronics from foreign and adversarial sources and coming up with a plan to get rid of them. We've got to keep that sold through 2027, which is the implementation date. So a lot of different legislative and policy eggs in that basket, right? We're looking for billions of dollars over here. We're looking for hundreds of millions of dollars over there. Some of that money moves in the next few months. Some of that money probably moves over the next few years through a program very similar to what we're seeing with the CHIPS Act at the Commerce Department. And then there's policy and, and priority guidance that we you know, give to our men and women in uniform to actually support the industry. So a lot of stuff on Capitol Hill. And I wouldn't neglect also some of the important work being done by the um, CCP committee on the Hill, the committee that's studying our competition globally with China. They've been in conversation with us now for some time. They had a report in December that I think is worth mentioning. They called on Congress and the administration to act on 150 technology imperatives, as they called them, where the U.S. needs to lead to own the future. Number one, top of the list, was increased capacity for domestic microelectronics, including PCBs and IC substrates. It's great to be at the head of the order. We really appreciate that recognition, and we're hoping to talk to the committee soon about where we fit in a global competitive environment. But it's just another piece of evidence, right, coming out of Washington that the smartest people in the room see this as a problem we need to address. So with regard to that uh, House Select Committee and the report which came out last month, I wasn't sure whether to take that as good news or bad news. It's good in the fact that we're gaining traction in terms of raising the industry profile in Washington, You know, as you, as you noted. I, I guess the downside is that things have to be pretty dire to make the top of a list like that. Given that, there's obviously increased focus on microelectronics in Washington. 
but we've also are barraged with with reports every day about how things have ground to a halt and and so forth. You know, without getting into the the ultra politics of this situation, sure. how do you communicate back to your members and to the industry at large to kind of keep their head up and keep moving forward? I, I coach basketball, and we always have a saying, you know, win this possession. Forget what just happened. You know, we got to move on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. You know, win all these little battles, these little step by step, these little victories. Do you kind of take that message back to them, or in lieu of having some giant big policy win? What I say to folks is that we need to be aggressive, but we also need to be patient. I counsel folks that the Chips Act took almost five years from ideation to execution. And Mike, think about who was behind the Chips Act. Some of the biggest companies in the world, right? Spending tens of millions of dollars of their own money. You had the COVID-19 pandemic inducing semiconductor shortfalls. There was this perfect storm of we need to act. The news cycle agrees that there's a problem and big companies are pushing a solution. Plus, there was congressional support on both sides of the aisle. When I talk about PCBAA, I remind people that we haven't even existed for three years. We've gone from five to 50 members in 30 months. We're growing, which is great. We've achieved legislative wins like the DPA and some of the funding for the DPAI and standalone legislation being introduced and co-sponsors. That's all well and good, but I want to manage expectations and be clear to people that things move slowly in Washington. There are competing priorities. I would be thrilled this year to see a Senate companion bill. I would be thrilled to see more co-sponsors. I would be thrilled to see those DPAI and IBAS funds restored. There's no shortage of things that we can have as successes in the near term. But when you talk about moving legislation that ends up on the president's desk, that can be a multi-year process. And I think our members understand that we're in it for the long haul, right? We're going to be here. Um, you know, This isn't an effort where we're planning to turn out the lights by Christmas. We're going to have to stay and engage in a sustained fight to support our industry. So 50 members now, that's really, I got to say, that's really impressive. What are the restrictions on on membership? If a multinational that is headquartered somewhere outside of the United States wants to join, can they do so? They can. Our guidance to anyone who's interested in PCBAA is be a company that manufactures, be a company that makes in America. And we have many companies that operate globally, some of which are headquartered in other countries. And of course, they've got US operations, they qualify for membership. I'm eager to talk to anybody who shares our view that supply chains need to be rebalanced, that we need to have more domestic capacity. And if you're part of that story, and I should say not just as a board shop, if you're an assembler, if you're a purchaser, if you're a raw material supplier, if you provide tooling or processes, if you're anywhere in the value chain, we want you on the team. We've got copper oxide, right? We've got woven glass. We've got board shops. We've got specialty chemicals. There is room at the table because the rising tide lifts all these boats, right? You may be looking at customers or suppliers who would benefit directly. And of course, it translates to your bottom line and your opportunity as well. So uh, the answer is yes, we want to talk to you if you share our passion for these issues. David, what does your typical day look like nowadays? Well, if I'm not in Washington on Capitol Hill, I spend a lot of time um, doing really uh, two things with one common thread, talking about our mission in a way that spreads the word, right? Talking to folks like yourself to get out there and reach the broader industry. That's a, a big segment of my time, and I'm very happy to be a spokesman in that regard. And I'm very happy also to talk to a lot of prospective members and our current members, right? Those 50 members they're key to our success. When they talk on social media, when they talk to their customers and suppliers, when we take them into Capitol Hill offices, 
that's a really important moment. Nobody tells the story, Mike, of what we're doing here better than the people building this technology, right? Um, you want to keep me away from a board production line because I'm a liberal <laughs> arts guy, right? There's there's not much I can do to, to churn out a good product on the end of the line. But what I love doing is sort of being a Sherpa and bringing folks to Capitol Hill, bringing folks to Washington to say, hey, tell your story because it will be very impactful. So, you know, member relations, recruitment, and really getting the word out widely it occupies a lot of my time, but it's a lot of fun because these issues are in the news. These companies are doing cool things. The government pays attention to what we're doing. And, um, you know, we're, we're running through walls at a, at a pretty aggressive pace because we have to, because we're digging out of this problem that's taken 30 years to get to a critical point. And, you know, we want to reverse the slide. David, before we wrap, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners today? No, Mike, I really appreciate the work you're doing to talk about these issues and shed light on it. There's been so many moving developments uh, on Capitol Hill and across the country on this, and I appreciate you getting the word out to your listeners. It's really important. Our guest today has been David Schild, Executive Director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. David, we appreciate the updates, and we look forward to talking again soon. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. For PCB Chat, this is Mike Buto. Have a nice day. Mm-hmm.